Um, when my kids were young, when I had kids at home, which has been a while now, one of the things, one of the exercises we liked to do as a family was to watch movies together. And we were pretty intentional about this, both on an entertainment level, but also on a developing discernment level. So we would watch movies sometimes just to hang out and have fun and do something fun together, watch something entertaining. But other times we were watching movies because it was a vehicle by which we could help the girls develop discernment. So what's the message of the movie? Is it true? Is it worth following? Did they do a good job? On and on and on. Part of the fruit of all that movie watching together was that we would end up memorizing movie lines. And then around the meal table, what came out of that was we would speak in movie ease to each other. So if someone asks a question or they respond to a question, they're responding with a quote from a movie. So it became a kind of help and code language around the table. So we realized if someone else came and they sat down with us and they're wondering why we're laughing about somebody's question or response, we realized, gosh, you know, they don't know the code. They don't know the language because the quote was more than a quote to us. Or the answer to the question was more than its singular content because... It came from a context. And so when someone said that, we're thinking about the movie it came from. And all that meant to us. And maybe shared past history along that movie or the quote from that movie. And you know, pretty much if you're in any group for any lengthy period of time, groups tend to develop their own values and their own way of communication. So if you're in a technical field or an educational field, you'll have language specific to that. But you also may just have language that's code for you or your group. That's true of most groups and it's true of this church as well. So the coded language I'm thinking of this morning in light of Lion and Lamb's identity in our history is this, and it is read your Bible. So the chuckles are from people that have been here a long time. Read your Bible. So three words, simple phrase. Why would anyone here laugh at that? And this has been Mike's mantra for the two decades long, just about two decades long length of this church life and it's an important one but if I say and I've, I've clarified this in the past if I just say read your Bible and you go away thinking all I meant was read your Bible you didn't get the context so when we say read your Bible we're really talking about making the knowledge of God's word part of the goal of your life and that read your Bible means meditate in the Bible it means for sure Read it regularly, ideally, every morning, the first part of your day. It means memorize Bible verses and Bible passages. It means know what God's called us to and then have a lifestyle that's reflective of what God's call in our life is. Read your Bible. Those three words, they take in all of that. It's code. It's shorthand for a lifestyle that's grounded in the truth of the Word. And that's certainly been true for for this church from its inception. So we are in part two of a six-part series. We did the same thing last fall. Part of our goal was if somebody's been here for a couple of years, we want them to know what Lion and Lamb believes, what we teach, what we think is foundational. So for we're in week two of six weeks. Kent kicked us off last week talking about truth in this series that's called Here We Stand. We didn't make up that title. If you know your history, when Martin Luther stood accused before the Roman Catholic Church for preaching the sufficiency of the Scriptures and salvation by faith, 
Luther famously said, here I stand, I can do no other. So the things that we're sharing, the elders and Steve Green's joining us in this for the six-week series, these are foundational elements to the life, the ethos, who we are, how we see life, what we think God's call on our life is. These are the hills we would die on. So this morning, with read your Bible in the back of your mind, we're taking on what's called the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The sufficiency of the Scriptures. I'll read a definition and we'll jump in here in just a second. Let me say before we do though, we're a little text heavy this morning. This is content heavy. There's a lot in the teaching this morning. I apologize for that on one hand and I I hope you really put on your thinking caps and stay focused on the other. It's all helpful information. The sufficiency of the Scripture, it's, it's being attacked today from within the church and from without. And so to say we hang our hat on this is to say we believe what God's given us in the Word is sufficient and adequate and all we need to know God, to be saved in a vital loving relationship with Him, have everything we need for life and practice. So the definition, I hope you've got a study sheet. We will not read all that's on page one of that, though we'll read a couple elements of there, but our working definition is the 66 books of the Bible contain all the words God intended us to have in order to know Him, trust Him for salvation, and please Him in all things. That's our working definition this morning. The Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, contain all the words God intended us to have so that we can know Him, trust Him for salvation, and please Him in all things. Guys, and we're going to roll down the fact that this is not unique to Lion and Lamb Church. The sufficiency of the Scriptures is historic. It's creedal. It's part of the the normative orthodoxy for the church. We'll go through all these things to say why this is a valid doctrine that we teach and hold to. And then at the end, we'll do some personal application. So stick with me while we wade through some of this. The first is that If you go back to the earliest records of the church, the early church assumed that the Scriptures were sufficient to know God, to love Him, and to please Him in the way we lived our life. So if you go back to those early centuries, read the Apostles' Creed, 3rd century, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, those were councils and creeds that came out early in the life of the church. They assumed the validity, the truth, the historicity, the sufficiency of the Scriptures. So when the church was figuring out what's true and what's not, especially in these foundational arenas about the person of Christ, what is, who is He? Is He a God? Is He a man? Is He both? Things along that line, they assumed the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Those early creeds were informed from the truth of the Scriptures. The church assumed that right from the get-go. In the next thousand years, as theology and church life developed, one of the dynamics became, just like in Jesus' day, you remember in the Gospels, Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had elevated their traditions above God's Word. They had reinterpreted God's Word in light of their traditions so that their traditions nullified the clear teaching of God's Word. Well, that happened from the 500s up to about... Uh, 1500 A.D. or so, in the church also. So what developed was a view of the Scriptures that said human councils formed of men are equal to or superior in authority to God's Word. 
humans and human councils can sit in judgment and say not only what is and what isn't God's Word, but redevelop the clear teaching of God's Word as they saw fit. That came straight out of Jewish practice that Jesus clearly rebuked in the Gospels. So when the Reformation rolled along, one of the key phrases that came out of that time was this, sola scriptura. And sola scriptura meant the Bible alone is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. What we believe about the Christian faith and how we walk that out, how we practice that. Sola scriptura. That informed the Reformation. It informs us right down to today. Now on your sheet, you've got several of these these creedal statements, and I included as many and as much as I could just because I was so encouraged reading through them. You know, it's affirming, it's encouraging when we remind ourselves what's true. Just to hear it again is a good thing. You can read some of those on your own time. I'll read a couple from the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. They wrote this in part, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. That's well stated, isn't it? They had that together. The Scriptures are adequate, and only the Scriptures have their unique authority from God to tell us who God is, how to come into a living relationship with Him, and then how to live and grow in that relationship we now enjoy in Christ. If you go to the Lion and Lamb website and you go to the top uh, options at the bar there, you can go to About. And one of the things you can click on is About and it will tell you what our statement of belief is, what Lion and Lamb teaches and believes. And if you go there, you'll note that we say that as a church, we subscribe or ascribe, we affirm what's called the 1978 Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. There's a link there and you can go to it. It's a lengthy document, but I wanted to read this much from it. They said, this church believes, to stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. So if we say God is our Father and Christ is our Savior, it would make sense that we do the things He's commanded us to do in the Scriptures. Failure to do that, the statement says, this church agrees, is disloyalty to our Master. They continue two brief points here. God, who is Himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal Himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as Creator and Lord, Redeemer and Judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to Himself. Friends, we're saying the Scriptures are adequate to reveal God to us today. They're sufficient. We don't need extracurricular anything God has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. The Bible is His testimony to Himself for us. Additionally, Holy Scripture being God's own Word, written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises." You can read a couple of other statements there from a systematic theology. Uh, Grudem's is probably the best-selling one here in the last 
couple of decades, and then the ESV Study Bible has its own statement. You'll see they're all pretty much about the same. And last, as far as reading through these statements, the Lion and Lamb statement of belief itself says this of the Scriptures. The Scriptures in their original autographs are the fully inspired Word of God without error, absolute in their authority, and complete in their provision for godly living. We encourage people when they come into the Lion and Lamb, if you heard something taught here that doesn't line up with the Scripture, you should let us know. We encourage those in the church to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. They listened, they took in the content, then they checked it against the Scriptures. Our plea to authority as elders in the church or as teachers or anything along this line is not inherently in ourselves. It's that we're submitting to the authority of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are our authority for faith and practice. So we believe that the Word of God, by God's grace and informed by His Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit that gives life, that makes God's Word legible, knowable by us, is all we need to know God, to believe God, to please God, and to live a life to His glory. The sufficiency of the Scriptures. Now, if we say we believe that and the early church believed that, that's a good start. But it doesn't stop there. The sufficiency of the Scriptures is taught by the Scriptures. The sufficiency of Scripture is taught by the Scriptures. And that makes sense, right? If I wrote you a letter and I told you how I wanted something done and I signed my name at the bottom of that letter, you know that I'm saying it's with my authority that I've said these things in this letter. Even if I had someone else type them out. My signature, and you know it's not a forgery, it's my signature, says this letter has my authority. Well, the Scriptures are God's Word. God says these words, my words, are authoritative. And then that's validated throughout the Scriptures themselves. One of the key texts in all the Bible is 2 Timothy 3, 15-17 on this theme. And you know, when we say read your Bible, and, and in part we mean uh, meditate on it, turn it over in your mind, make it your own, and memorize it, this is a great memory passage. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, Paul's talking to his young protege Timothy, and Timothy's mom had been a believer. He'd grown up in a household that was practicing and was aware of and reading at some level or another God's Word. And Paul said this to Tim. He said, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And the key for us here is all Scripture is inspired. It's, inspired, it's breathed out by God. Though we've got letters on a page, we're saying the original for this came straight from God. It's inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We're not going to spend a lot of time in any of the things we're in this morning. There's too much ground to cover. But notice at least quickly, the Scriptures give wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus. We're an evangelical church. That means we believe the truth of the Gospel and that people need to hear the Gospel, the message that we're sinful. Jesus is our substitute, died in our place, rose for our justification, and it's through faith in Jesus that we come into a vital living relationship with God today. That happens through the truth of the Scripture. That's where it's informed. If someone has another way to heaven, they're not getting it from the Bible. 
That's God's authority. The other thing, the Scriptures equip us for interacting with each other redemptively. When it says teach, reprove, correct, and train, it says we're able to do that for each other. And this doesn't just mean parents to children. We're teaching each other. We're correcting each other. If you heard Mike say something, you could challenge me with the Scriptures, right? And I hope you would. If I was off base, you'd say, Mike, how does that fit in? That doesn't sound like what the Bible teaches. But we're equipped to redemptively interact with each other through the truth of God's Word. And it's by the Scriptures that we're adequately equipped. I love that last line. For every good work. That last that God has you. series we were in through Nehemiah, we talked throughout that God has unique works of faith He calls each of us to. Unique works of faith. Philippians says uh, God gives us the will and the doing of His good pleasure. Ephesians 2 talks about the good works God's called us to walk in. Guys, this is the thing. 2 Timothy 3 says the way you and I are equipped, the way we're prepared for those works of faith, those good things God means us to do, is through knowing what He said in the Word. So the converse is also true. If you don't know what God has established as truth in His Scripture, you are not prepared for the good works He's called you to walk in. Your preparation and mine, our ability to be redemptively helpful in the lives of those folks around us that we know and love, or strangers that don't know yet Christ, is the truth of God's Word. That's how He prepares us. Second Peter verses one or chapter one verses three and four say something along the same line. Just for brevity's sake, I'll let you read that later. But it's again, it doesn't say Bible and Scripture here, but it tells us that it's the true knowledge of God that's revealed in the Scriptures, and it's the magnificent promises God has put in His Word. That's what we base our life on. That's how we come to faith in Christ, and that's how we live. I do want to spend a moment in Psalm 19 with you. This was David's declaration. This was his estimation of the value of God's Word. Now think about this for just a second. When David wrote Psalm 19, he may not have had any more the knowledge of God's Word than the first five books of the Bible. So books that you and I might fall asleep to, this is what David said as he described the value of God's Word. So David said, I'm starting at verse 7, the law... Those first five books are sometimes called the Law, the Torah, the Pentateuch. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. God's Word is everything it should be. And when we're in it, it restores our soul. It builds us back up. It encourages us when we're down. The testimony of the Lord, God's Word, is sure it makes wise the simple. The simple in Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs, written by David's son, primarily Solomon, or collected by him, says we don't want to be simple. We don't want to be naive morally. And God's Word is sure, and it gives the morally simple wisdom. It gives us wisdom. It says in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Uh, have you ever had a time when you're reading the Bible and, and something strikes you and you get this uh, surge of joy? I hope you have. You guys look like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I hope that's not the case. So sometimes in my quiet time, just last week, I'm reading and I see something I've never seen before. It's an aha moment. I feel like I'm like driving through the mountains. I'm in a lovely vista to begin with. 
But then I crest a hill and there's a more glorious vision beyond that. Well, that's what being in God's Word will do for us. It rejoices our heart. Guys, joy is strength too. If you find that you tend to be discouraged, you're not sure how to plug into life, joy brings strength. Joy gives us a kind of moral strength and courage that helps us through the rest of life. If you find yourself down, it's God's Word that will give joy to your heart. God's Word is pure. It enlightens the eyes. We live in a morally dark world. Friends, we have a morally dark soul. An old sinful nature that never gets any better. And it's God's Word coming into our vision, coming into our mind, that brings light and enlightenment with it. Judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. There's nothing unholy or unrighteous in the Scriptures. Verse 10, David says they're more desirable than gold. If you're not into trinkets, this might not sound like much. If you're not a woman who likes jewelry, this might... Eh, who cares? But really, what, what's gold? Gold represents the wealth of the world and all that the world has to offer. And David says, nothing... This is a king of a nation. This is a guy who knows something about wealth and what you can buy with money. David says that God's Word is more desirable than all the wealth the world has to give. God's Word is better, more satisfying. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I find that when I know and keep God's Word, I feel like life just gets elevated to this additional plane. You know, it's funny, when we entertain sin in our lives and we wonder why life isn't any better, there's a reason for that. But when we come into the truth of the Scriptures and we bring our life under submission to God's authority in the Word, it's amazing how good life can be. And it just gets better. That's what knowing and doing God's Word will do for you. Psalm 119, two verses there also I'll let you read on your own. Um, so the early church taught the sufficiency of the Scripture, assumed it. And Scripture itself says the Scriptures themselves are adequate for us. Those are good reasons to believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The next one, if we didn't have any other reason to believe in the Scriptures, this one would be enough. Jesus modeled the sufficiency of the Scriptures. That we didn't need anything more than God's Word, the Word He's given and delivered, the authoritative Word of God. Jesus modeled the sufficiency of the Scripture. Now remember this, when God the Son came to earth... He exercised at least at various times, thinking of the miracles, divine authority and power, right? But in all these other instances, you see Jesus not resorting to divine power, but He resorts to the truth of the Word He Himself had already given to men, specifically to the Jewish nation. So, Jesus referred to Genesis to clarify God's intention for marriage. You see that in Matthew 19. That's a reference to both Genesis 1 and 2. Interesting, you know, in his day it was a conversation about divorce. What would we do if we didn't have Genesis 1 and 2 today to define what God's goal is for sexuality and marriage? It's the foundation stone in the Bible. Jesus referred to that as his defense of God's plan for marriage. He quoted God's word from memory to defeat Satan in Matthew 4 when he was being tempted. Now that's that's a pretty good argument to memorize the, the word, right? You know, I was having a tough, tough time just a couple of weeks ago. And I was just battling despair. And I thought, Lord, I just don't know how to get out of this. I mean, I feel blessed, guys, on a bad day. I've lived a, a blessed life. This is not that my life is down and hard. Just, I have a human 
tendency and sometimes I battle discouragement and despair too. And I was in such a hole and I just thought, Lord, how do I get out of this? You know, what do I need to think and to know? And because I've been in the Bible a long time and because even though my memory is not what it used to be, I still have a lot of it memorized. As I'm sitting there and praying, a verse comes to mind and I look it up and I re-memorize it and I've been quoting it to myself and guess what happens to despair? It goes away. Because God's given me something from my memory. Storing God's Word in our mind is just a great way not only to overcome sin, but just to be encouraged along the way. Jesus clarified doctrinal matters and deficient views of God's will with the Scriptures. The Pharisees and Sadducees had some misunderstandings about what God said in the Word. And so Jesus used the Scripture to clarify their faulty theology. He committed His own disciples to His Father's care. This is important too. If I was leaving you forever, you were never going to see me again. This isn't quite quite the same, but if, I, if I'm praying for you and you know we're together and I'm praying for you for the last time we're ever going to pray together, and I say, Lord, would you take care of so-and-so by the truth of your Word, that would be fairly significant, wouldn't it? So when Jesus is praying to the Father for His disciples the night before He's crucified, and He's entrusting them into His Father's care, He says, Father, would you sanctify them in the truth? Would you set them apart? Would you guard them? Would you keep them safe? And then He said, Your Word is truth. God, would You keep My friends, My disciples? That same context, Jesus said to the disciples, You're My friends. I care about You. I've revealed My heart to You. And He prays to the Father, Would You keep them by the truth of the Word? In fact, isn't it interesting? Jesus died quoting Scripture. Psalm 22, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He was quoting Scripture. A psalm that He knew He had inspired. It was a messianic psalm. He died quoting Scripture. And when he returned after the grave, Luke 24, he told his disciples if they wanted to see him. Now remember at this point, there's no epistles and there's no written Gospels. He says, guys, if you want to see me, read your Bible. Read the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. Because he said, I'm I'm scattered throughout all the Old Testament. Jesus is revealed through the Word. So, The early church believed the Scriptures affirm and Jesus modeled the sufficiency of the Scriptures. So, we could say to ourselves, if we want to be saved from sin, if we want to enjoy heaven forever, if we want the knowledge to tell someone else how to be saved and enjoy heaven forever, we should... This is your cue. Read our Bible. (laughs) If we need wisdom at work or in our family, we should... Read our Bible. If we lack joy, we should... Read our Bible. If we want to gain freedom from sin in our life, we should read our Bibles. If we want to be adequately prepared for life and all the good works God has called us to, we should. And only one more. You're almost there. If we want to live in imitation of Jesus, we would read our Bibles. Yeah, absolutely. Let me say too, sort of winding down towards application, uh, point four on your, your study sheet, the sufficiency of Scripture precludes other authoritative revelation. Guys, if somebody else comes along and tells you they have an authority by which you can know God, be saved, live life successfully that isn't part of the 66 books of the Bible, you can shoo them away safely. 
Because the sufficiency of the Scripture also says that it's the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone that have this unique authority that they are from God and that no other revelation available on earth can compete with the Scriptures given. So that if someone else is bringing you another Messiah, another Gospel, another way to reach nirvana, whatever their version of truth is, you can safely discard it if it's in opposition to the Scriptures, if it doesn't come from those words. I do want to give you a couple examples. In Isaiah's day, Israel was just rife with idolatry. They knew how the pagans practiced religion and they were doing the same thing. And one of the things they were doing is they would seek help from the dead. Remember in the story of King Saul and before he goes and faces that battle and is killed in battle, he goes to a spiritist and asks her to get wisdom from Samuel. This was, of course, banned by God, but that's the thought here in Isaiah 8. And so Isaiah says this, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, and we could put in anything or anyone else outside the Scriptures in that category, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony or the writings, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn or no light. There's no truth in them if they're not in reference to the word God had already given. To the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak from these things, there's no spiritual revelation, there's no light, there's no authority there. You got the same thing in Jeremiah's day. Uh, it's a great, this is a great memory passage too. In Jeremiah's day, there were false prophets. And you can read that in Jeremiah's, the, name that bear, the book that bears his name. And they were saying, this is what God has said, or that is what God has said, but God hadn't. And so Jeremiah said in part, Jeremiah 6.16, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. The ancient paths were the revelation God had already given. It wasn't the stuff the false prophets were spewing. It was the revelation God had already given. You got a couple other, uh, you got Jude 3 there you can read later. Uh, I find this interesting. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they're a unit. That's why we can refer to them as a name, the Pentateuch or the Torah or the law. And in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are two warnings that say, do not add to, do not take away from God's Word. So in the first section of the Bible, we're warned, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And when you get to the last verses of the Bible in Revelation 22, you've got the same refrain. Don't add to the Scriptures. Don't take away from the Scriptures. God's warning us, His authority lies within those 66 books of the Bible. The sufficiency of Scripture means it's God's Word, the Bible, that all wisdom and truth is present, adequate for our needs in living for the glory of God. So, if I say, do we believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture? And you're sitting up conscious in the front of your seat, you say, oh yeah. So let me just ask you some questions. If we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, what does that look like in your life and mine? What does that look like in our life as a church family? In other words, is it only lip service? So you know, some of us treat the Bible like holy water. You know what that means? We... Some of you don't have this past, so we sprinkle a little on ourselves occasionally as needed. Like perfume. Look, that's enough. 
Not too much. Sprinkle a little holy water on. Or how about this? For some of us, the Bible is like a ring of power. You know, I don't know what it says, but it says it good. I'm, that Bible I've never read, it's good. You know, it's like a talisman. You know, I, I've got a Bible there, so I think I'm good. You know, or if it's a big study Bible and somebody breaks through my door, I can club them over the head with it. You know, I can use it that way too. The old family style Bible, you know, defensive purposes. You know, for some of us, it's a home furnishing. We discreetly put it on the corner of our coffee table. We might even open it like we read it. You know, for someone that comes in or it's on the bookshelf and you can see. Or maybe we reproduce Bibles that we don't read. Do you guys ever do that? I need another Bible. I'm not reading the ten I've got, but I'll, I'll buy one more. How about this? Uh, I've been convicted by this one. The amount of dust on my nightstand Bible may tell me it's time to clean house. That's helpful. How much dust is on that Bible, on my nightstand? So, but think about where this goes. If we say we believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures, that God's Word reveals God to us, adequate to know Him, be saved, and then adequate to honor Him. And that also conversely, that not to know God's Word means I'm unprepared for the things I know my Father's going to call me to be about. I may not be able to help others God means me to help. If I say I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but I'm not reading my Bible, what do I really believe? What do I really believe? See, we could come to a few conclusions. One conclusion might be, um, I don't believe the Bible is sufficient. I say I do, but I really don't. And that's why I don't read it. That's why I don't live my life out of it. Because I don't really believe it. We might also say this, I, I do believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures on one hand, but I don't care enough about God or God's things to read my Bible. Can you feel... I, this isn't guilt, this is conviction. It's lowering, coming down from the ceiling. No guilt, hopefully. Hopefully lots of conviction. I know a lot of you, and we give good lip service to the Bible, guys, but most of us do not read our Bibles. Don't read them daily. Don't make the Bible the center of our relationship with God. What are we really saying if we don't read our Bibles regularly? You have to come to some conclusion. I say this, but I do this. They're not the same. What's the difference? Some people, and I know especially for newer believers, maybe you are one, or have you known somebody who's come to faith in Christ recently, and they say they're excited. They're, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to read right through to Revelation. And you, know, you talk to them a week or two or three later, and, and they fell apart, didn't they? Because they got through the stories, the narratives of Genesis, got into Exodus, started getting the law code. Got into Leviticus, got to Numbers. You know where that goes. It's like, you know, if you're a new believer, if you haven't read the Bible much, if you don't have context, we don't start in the Old, we go in the New. Because the New Testament was written to us and for us. So it's good to read or start in John's Gospel and read through Acts and see what the early church life was like and read the epistles. Do not start in Revelation, by the way, if you're going in the New Testament. You can end there, but do not start there. Right? So... So we can get there. If we say we're intimidated, I want to read my Bible, but I just don't feel like I have context, I don't understand, I get lost in it. If you plug away, you can do this. And if you don't have a model or a method already where you're reading your Bible regularly, you could start tomorrow, 10 minutes in the morning, and say, Lord, I'm just going to sit down with you and I'm going to talk to you, that's prayer. For five minutes, and I'm going to read my Bible. For ten minutes, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. 
And friends, you'd find that day after day, week after week, month after month, you would gain in your understanding of the Bible because God will reveal the Bible to you. The sufficiency of Scripture also means this. The Bible is adequate to understand the Bible. You know, we live in the information age. I think we live in the age Daniel 12 mentions. Knowledge is increased. So we have all kinds of options for studying, don't we? So commentaries, blogs, websites, each other. We've got lots of options. We've got archaeological studies that didn't exist decades ago. We've got knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. We've got additional documentation about what the ancient Near East was like. We've got lots of commentaries, all kinds of stuff. We could visit and say, what does this tell me about God's Word? But the truth is, helpful as those may be, and I use them all, and I'd encourage you to use them all too, but they're secondary. Because it's the Scripture that ultimately defines for you and I what the Scripture means. And that's all we need. If we have nothing but the Bible, we have enough. The Bible, the grace of God, and the Holy Spirit, we can understand what God wants us to know from the Bible. We bring a humble attitude and ask the Spirit to enlighten us. There was a guy, uh, gosh, he was born, I think it was in 18, maybe 78 or so. Harry Ironside was a well-known guy 100 years ago. Born in the late 1800s. His dad died, I think, when he was two years old, but... This was one bright kid. He only got an 8th grade education. He didn't think he needed more. He went to work, helped support his mom and his family. But from an early age, even when he wasn't a Christian, he was preaching the Gospel to little kids. He and friends uh, sewed together burlap sacks, I kid you not, made a tent, and had evangelistic outreach meetings. He wasn't even a believer. He was like 10 years old. This is what he was doing. From an early, early point of his age, that's all he wanted to do. Uh, an evangelist uh, that was in the area that knew his family well confronted him and said, man, if you're going to preach it, you better believe it yourself. And Ironside finally became a Christian as a young teenager. But he was very bright. He had a photographic memory. Uh, His education formally was limited, certainly. But he was smart enough that Dallas Theological Seminary asked him to be a professor. He turned that down. He was the teaching pastor at Moody Church in Chicago in the 1930s and 40s. He spoke internationally. He wrote about 80 books or more. So he's a bright guy. But early in his ministry, he'd been preaching, he'd been teaching, but he just felt like something's missing. And he heard about this guy named Andrew Frazier, who at that time was living in a tent outside Los Angeles. This is still probably in the 1910s or teens. I don't think it was any later than that. Frazier was an old guy that was dying, and that's why he lived in a tent. He was contagious. But Ironside had heard this guy really knows God and the Bible. So Ironside went out to visit him. And he told him, he's, I'm trying to preach the Gospel and teach the Word. And, and this is from E. Schuller English's uh, biography of Ironside called Ordained of the Lord. Well, said the aged servant of the Lord, sit down for a while and let's talk together about the Word of God. He then opened his much-worn Bible and for some time, in fact, until his strength was about gone, earnestly presented truth after truth of the precious Word of God turning from one passage to another. He did this in so simple and so sweet a manner that young Ironside entered into these truths in a way that he never had before. Tears began running down the cheeks of the young preacher. Ironside says, Where did you get these things? He asked. Can you tell me where I can find such a book that will open such wonderful truths to me? Did you learn these things in seminary? That would be a good question. 
He waited for Fraser's answer, which he never forgot. My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all colleges or seminaries of the world. Now, Frazier was not disparaging academic intellectual pursuit in the Scriptures. And, and Ironside was awarded two honorary doctorates, but he lamented to the day of his death that he didn't have more formal education. They weren't knocking academics or seminaries. It was just this. Only God can give you some things. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you don't taste the piece of apple pie, you don't know what it tastes like. But once you've tasted it, you know something that no one else can tell you. And that's what Frazier was saying. There are things your father wants to tell you that no one else can tell you, or they can't tell you in that same way. And God your Father and Christ your Savior want to reveal themselves to us, and they'll do that through the Scriptures. So old Frazier said, nope, it's not seminary, it's not commentaries, it's not blogs, it's not websites. It's my Bible open asking God to make Christ real to me. And show me more of himself. So friends, that's true for any of us. Any of us can do that. We are living, just applying this a little bit to the culture and the times we live in, guys. We are living today when those inside and outside the church are attempting to tear down the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. This is not just outside the church. This is inside the evangelical church today. Even evangelical Christians today are declaring that the first 11 chapters of Genesis contain no history. These are well-known evangelicals scattered across the country. That they're poetic, that there's no historic Adam, that they tell nothing of real history, though the rest of Genesis does. But consider what they're throwing out. From the opening chapters of Genesis, the foundation for the value of humanity is laid because we're made in the image of God. That's Genesis. Also, the fall of mankind is explained. Evil on the earth, the sinful dispositions we have is explained in Genesis. The fallen condition. Also, though, think of this. Our sexuality, sexual identity, that comes out of Genesis. Marriage comes out of Genesis. Family comes out of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. And so does the first promise of a Savior, Genesis 3. This is not just out there. This is in-house. This is in the evangelical church. So if we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, guys, we will. You know the drill. We'll read our Bible, yeah. Memorize, meditate. I don't mean this legalistically. Again, whatever you hear, please don't hear that. The Scripture is life. If I had a drink of cold water, you don't have to tell me to legalistically drink water. I want to drink water. When you've tasted of the goodness of God's Word, you will want to keep reading. When our souls need comfort, when we face temptations... When we want to grow closer, we will read our Bible. Kathy and I, as young Christians and newly married, I think this is all in our first year of marriage, still getting a grip on the truth of the Scriptures and newly married and putting all you know, the big picture of life together. We would listen to as many Bible teaching radio programs as we, as we could. And one of our favorites came on, it was either late afternoon or early evening, and when a, a guy with a funny voice invited us to get on the Bible bus, J. Vernon McGee threw the Bible. Well, we would listen to that every night. 
And McGee's program began with this hymn, and I'm just going to read the first part of that hymn to you. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? You can build a life on the truth of the Scriptures. And we should be. God, would You help us to take seriously the sufficiency of Your Word, the authority that it has, Lord, the power it has to transform us into the image of Your Son and to declare the truth of God to a dying and dark world. God, would You help us to live it and not just say it. In Jesus' name, Amen.